0: Hey everybody, this is Clatu. Before we get into the N section of the Slackware install disk, I wanted to tidy up some things from the L section that we just got out of. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you must be new around here. We're going through every single package installed on a Slackware Linux DVD but not today. That's all the other episodes, but today we're going to talk a little bit about a package from the L section that I that I didn't quite understand and have had new explanations given to me from a kind listener feedback. So, I'll be talking about that and then I'm going to talk about something completely different to round out the show. Okay, so the the package that I that I've misaligned in uh, episode four, uh, 50, five, four, six, 546 is the Net PBM package. And hipster wrote in uh, an email entitled "In Defense of Net PBM." And here's what hipster has to say: I am writing in response to episode five four six and in defense of Net PBM. I agree that PNG and WebP are good open source image storage formats, and a good job has been done making sure that libraries exist for the most commonly used languages. I understand wanting to eradicate NetPBM. NetPBM is guilty of cluttering up any system with a proliferation of this to that conversion programs that could and should be handled by command line parameters. I think ImageMagick is a similar suite of programs that clutter up a system with all kinds of weird little programs that should just be combined into a general tool. This is an unfortunate byproduct of the Unix philosophy that has been sort of dropped Lots of early Unix utilities took the do-one-thing-and-do-it-well rule to justify the creation of loads of little single-use tools, and it seems like that aspect of Unix is quietly being dropped. ImageMagick, for instance, is combining many commands under the magic command. But netpbm and its family subscribe to another unix philosophy rule that gets ignored it's an aspect of the rule that assuming that the program about assuming that the program will be used in pipelines which means that netpbm's output is text it's the only image format i know with this feature While I do not typically use PNM, which stands for Portable Any Map, in Unix-style command line pipelines, I do use it, on occasion, for generating visual displays of complex information that don't fall easily into commonly used um, visual styles like pie charts or bar graphs. And in a pinch, files in these formats, PAM, PBM, PNM, PRM, and so on, can be viewed and edited as a text file. In situations where you have to really strip data down to its core in order to make sense of it, this can be very useful. Other data types, I am thinking of audio in particular, would benefit from a text-based uncompressed format as a a last-ditch fallback. In audio, the .wav format is almost this, but it suffers from some unusual format demands based on being a Microsoft format of a particular era. There should be a very generic, uncompressed audio format analogous to NetPBM that makes it possible to edit audio in a text file. Such a format would be ludicrously huge, like NetPBM files, but typically these files can be losslessly compressed because they're just text. I digress. The TLDR version of this. NetPBM is in line with the core Unix philosophy. And while it clutters up a system with an excess of tools, that is a very Unix-y thing to do. And on the positive side, it delivers a human-readable, text-based, editable data structure that no other format offers. And that's the end of Hipster's email. That that was uh, basically word for word. Uh, I just read exactly what Hipster wrote to me. So that is the advantage the that is the the advantage that net pbm is claiming to have over other formats is that it is essentially text-based and i agree and disagree with that because uh it takes you a while to get to the text-based aspect of net pbm uh and it took me quite a while and it was one of the many reasons i didn't quite understand the advantage of in uh, of, of net uh yeah pbm PNM, and all these other formats wasn't quite clear on what was going on um and the 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 man page doesn't really help a whole lot if you go to um man pbm that's the uh the the, the main format the pbm that's the lowest common denominator monochrome file format It serves as a common language of a large family of bitmap image conversion filters because the format pays no heed to efficiency. It is simple and general enough that you can uh, easily develop programs to convert to and from just about any other graphics format or to manipulate the image. The name PBM is an acronym derived from Portable Bitmap. P-B-M. Portable Bitmap. This is not a file format. That one would normally use to store a file or to transmit it to someone. It's just too expensive and too express and not expressive enough for that. It's just an intermediary format. In its purest use, it lives only in a pipe between two other programs. So that's the PBM um, declaration of its of its own sort of purpose, and and that's fine. Um, but it kind of it it gets a little bit, it it starts to get a little bit confusing once you get into the details. Um, it describes itself. It says the fi- the the format definition is as follows: a PBM file consists of a sequence of one or more PBM images. There are no date. There are no data delimiters or padding before, after, or between images. Each PBM image consists of the following: a magic number for identifying the file type. A PBM image's magic number is uh, two characters. It's P. So at the start, at byte zero of every PBM file, you should see a P4. That's how you would know that that's a PBM file. That's the magic number. Uh, and then you get white space, which can be blanks or tabs or uh, carriage returns or line feeds or whatever kind of white space. There's the width in pixels of the image formatted as ASCII characters in decimal. And then more white space, and then the height in pixels of the image, again using ASCII, and then a single white space character. It's usually a new line character, and then the raster height, uh, the the raster of height rows in order from top to bottom. Each row is uh, width. Each row is width bits packed eight to a byte with don't care bits to fill out the last byte in the row. Each bit represents a pixel. One is black, zero is white. The order of the pixels is left to right. The order of their storage within each file byte is most significant bit to least significant bit. The order of the file byte is from the beginning of the file toward the end of the file. A row of an image is horizontal, column is vertical, the pixels in the image are square and contiguous. Okay, before a white space character that delimits the raster, any character from a hash through the next carriage return or newline character is a comment. All characters referred to herein are encoded in ASCII new line refers to the character known in ASCII as line feed or LF. A white space character can be uh, anything that ANSI standard C f- you know would would recognize with is space parentheses parentheses the the function. All right. So that's 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 PBM and if you read that then it sounds like it's all ASCII, right? That's what it sounds like. Well, if you actually look at a PBM, so I've got this, um, well, okay, so let's start really simple. I've got a one-by-one one pixel image file. I, I keep a one-pixel image file on most of my computers because it, it is surprisingly useful to have that around for testing. So um, if I do a png2, that's p-n-g-t-o... P A M P P A M being, uh, I don't know, Man 5 PAM. It's a, um, it's a two-dimensional bitmap, bitmap format. Uh, the PAM image format is a lowest common denominator two-dimensional map format. It's designed to be used for any myriad kinds, any of myriad kinds of graphics, but can theoretic- theoretically be used for any kind of, data that is arranged as a two-dimensional rectangular array. Uh, Actually, from another perspective, it can be seen as a format for data arranged as a (laughs) three-dimensional array. Okay. Uh, The the name PAM is an acronym derived from Portable Arbitrary Map. All right. I mean, it's always good when a man page starts out defining a thing as, I don't know, say, a two-dimensional array and then ends that paragraph with but actually, it's this other thing instead. Well, what was that paragraph for? Um, Okay, so png to pam, and then in my home directory graphic, pixel.png, and then I'm going to redirect the output of that to pixel.pam, because as Hipster pointed out, the the output of these conversion programs go to standard out. So I'm redirecting it to pixel.pam. And, uh, first of all, I get some lib PNG warnings, so that's interesting. It's a CRC error, which I feel like I should know what that means off the top of my head. And I don't, I just can't remember. Uh, that's fine. I'm gonna do a cat on pixel pam, and I got P4. That's good, right? That's the magic number that we were told about. And then a 1 white space one so one space one so if if you'll recall from the man page that's a uh, one um, one by one it's it's describing the height and the width of the image and it is doing so accurately and then I've got the uh, I've got my my prompt on the next line but before my prompt I have uh, a funky looking character sort of a filled in uh, box with a question mark in it it's a little bit weird um, okay so let's take a a different, a more complex image, and see if we can get anything more sort of descriptive. So I'm gonna do png to pam, and then here's this screenshot that I took of just just a portion of my screen. I wanted it to be more complex than one than one pixel, but I didn't want it to be 1920 by 1080 pixels. So png to pam, screenshot png, and then again redirecting the output to screenshot dot, let's do pam again. Now I'm going to do, let's do most on screenshot.pan. Okay, so I've got P6 this time, and it's 652 space 459, so that makes sense. That's some description of the width and the height. And then I've got 255 on its own line, which I don't remember what that's supposed to describe, but it's, it seems that's a number I recognize. And then I've got carrot R, carrot N, carrot question mark, less than symbol B, B4 or 84? I have to lean forward. 84. Uh, greater than less than eight zero greater than less than f five greater than less than f four no f a and so on it goes on for l- like that for um a lot is what i would describe that as it's just a lot it goes on for way off my screen like it's scrolling to the right because this is most and it's not imposing line breaks um yeah so so yeah they, that that's going on for quite a while maybe what if i do a cat oh my goodness yeah cat shows it a lot um well it's a lot uglier and and it goes on for screenfuls and screenfuls and it's just uh you know to my eyes unrecognizable sort of output i mean semicolon at symbol 8 semicolon at symbol 8 repeat that like i don't know 32 times less than question mark parentheses comma dash and then the weird question mark thing you know the filled in block with a question mark in it um so this isn't the sort of the ascii output i had kind of i feel like i had been promised from these formats and and that makes you wonder well what What was the advantage here again? Because I I thought from Hipster's email and from the man page, I thought that this was supposed to be a a human-readable, easily pipeable and sendable text format. Well, let's look at this a little bit closer. First of all, this is redirectable, this is sending stuff to standard output. So you get to decide where the where the output of this conversion application goes in the end. You can you can redirect this if you want to. And that to hipster's I think main point of of sort of respecting this Unix philosophy, I I think that's probably that's probably key to what hipster was emailing about. But but there is the other matter of well what kind of output are we actually Actually getting. And from the man page and from Hipster's email, I thought I was gonna get plain text that I could edit in a text editor or something. Well, there is that as well, it's just there's a caveat here. So, as the man page eventually gets around to revealing, uh, there is... where is this? It must be in... Here it is. It's in man pbm, and uh, the, these these man pages have a, a weird habit of kind of, like, telling you one version of the story, and then changing gears, like, later on as you keep reading. So, so, because remember Pam told you that it was a 2, I think it was Pam, that it was a 2D pixel array or something, and then, and then by the end of the paragraph it was like, well, but really it's a 3D array or something like that. Um, well, pbm tells you all about pbm and then about halfway through it says oh by the way there is actually that literally says that there is actually another version of the pbm format even more simplistic more lavishly wasteful of space than pbm called plain pbm plain pbm actually came first but um blah 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 resources blah 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 so but plain pbm is so redundant so overstated that is virtually impossible to break. You can send it through the most liberal mail system, which was the original purpose of the PBM format, and it will arrive still readable. You can flip a dozen random bits and easily piece back together the original image. And we hardly need to define the format here because you can decode it by inspection. Uh, challenge accepted. Um, challenge challenge to not be able to do that. Accepted. NetPBM pro- programs... Uh, generate raw pbm format instead of plain pbm by default but the common option dash plain chooses plain pbm there is exactly one image in a plain pbm file the magic number is p1 instead of p4 the magic number was p6 uh, maybe that was for something else each pixel in the raster is represented by a byte containing ascii one or zero representing black and white respectively there are no fill bits at the end of a row white space in the raster section is ignored you can put any junk you want after the raster if it starts with a white space character no line should be longer than 70 characters. Should, I don't know what that's dependent upon, but they're saying it shouldn't be longer than 70 characters. And then they even give a small uh, example right here in the man page of what a valid PBM would would look like, which I think was pretty cool. Um, so I'm going to copy that data. Uh, and it says there's a new line character at the end of each line. You can generate it from a regular PBM format, uh, with the PNM 2 plain PNM program. Okay. So you could do PNM 2 plain PNM on a, uh, let's do a pixel dot, uh, what was it? Pam? Uh, yeah, Yeah. yes, that's correct. Okay, so there you go. Um, if I do pnm to plain pnm on uh, space pixel.pam, then I get the output of p1 1 space 1 1. That's three separate lines. p1, new, new line, 1 space 1. One white space, one new line, one. And that's the plain PNM, or plain PBM. But as we've learned, PNM is the all-inclusive label for any kind of P-something-M. So anyway, you're getting a plain PNM from pixel.pam with PNM to plain PNM. Okay, let's try this on something a little bit fancier let's do this screenshot that i took earlier uh pnm to plain pnm space screenshot dot pam oh yeah that's a lot more that's that i believe that is text data so uh it is as promised very verbose and it has numbers across the screen for pages and pages and pages it's it's taken up my entire terminal history or you know scroll back whatever it's called so yeah that that's that's believable let me do that again and i'm going to send it to um output.pnm And then I'll do a display output.pnm. And yep, there it is. That's my screenshot. Wow, that is cool. That is really cool. Okay, so let's find out how big this file is. I am kind of curious. So output.pnm is 3.2 megabytes for, remember this was a a non, this was just a a portion of my screen and it's 3.2 megabytes. So it is as promised, quite wasteful, quite, there's a lot here uh but i mean that did render the screenshot like exactly as expected yeah that's very cool okay so let's do emacs uh i think this file name was feep.pnm or something like that paste in a feeb no feeb f-e-e-p dot p-b-m whatever okay so um this is just the output from oh that's too much indentation um this is output from the um hold on indent uh, code rigidly or what is it indent rigidly that's what it is just kind of removing this this space at the beginning of the um at the file okay so this is the 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 thing that got pasted in or that i pasted in from the man page so this was their demo graphic in a man page which really is very cool all right let's display feep.pnm whatever uh there it is and it's the word feep f e e p as as sort of promised um and that's really cool uh let's identify that file so that's 24 by 7 oh wait i could have i could have learned that by doing a cat on feep.pnm and it told it tells me right there in the header p1 that's that's a pbm i guess uh hash so that's a comment feep.pbm and then under that 2 4 space 7 meaning it's 24 pixels wide and 7 pixels tall and if you look at this code that is in the um in the man page you you can see it's almost it's essentially you could think of it as ascii art because you can see the word feep spelled out in in ones in a sea of otherwise zeros it it because it's it's a little bit hard to see, to be honest, uh, because there's space between them, and and it just doesn't. Uh, if if you're not looking for something that looks sensible, you won't you know you won't see it. If you're not, I, I I think. I mean, maybe you will. I I didn't see it at first at all. Um, but you can totally see it now that I know what I'm looking for, and and it's spelt out in ones in, in a, on a background of zeros. F E E P. And when you re- when when you look at it, it is indeed the word it's it's the letters f-e-e-p which which says it's not a word but i mean that's close enough to a word right i mean it's a string of letters and and it is as advertised so in theory i should be able to for instance emacs feep dot pnm oh and actually emacs is rendering it for me that's funny Uh, i didn't really want that i wanted it to be in text mode there we go Um, so I could, I could just change things myself, um, if I'm understanding correctly. I think I am now. So we could do, uh, well, maybe we could make it say peep, like a little, um, a little, uh, like a chicken, or whatever they're called. Like a baby chicken? What are they, chicks? Yeah, chicks. Uh, okay, so there. Now I think I have spelled out peep now. And if I display feep.pnm, oh dear, I must have, oh no, I just did the wrong command. There we go. Yeah, there it is. I mean, it's very small, I will say. It's it's tiny, I mean, and, and that makes sense because it's it's just a, an array of seven, 7 by 24 digits in your text editor. So uh, when that renders, that is appropriately, you know, that's fairly uh, small. But there it is, Peep. P E E P. If you if you use display to to display it, uh, when you make the window bigger, it it magnifies that image as well, so you can actually read it. If, if you can't when it, in its smallest form, that's really cool. Wow, that is just wow. There that that is nice. That is really nice to be able to just edit a file and then have it basically render as an image. That's I mean, that's almost, that's one of those things where it's just kind of like, too good to be true. Uh, I'm going through and just kind of randomly changing some of these values, just to see what happens if I add some color into this file. And it looks like when I display that... Oh, I've messed things up very, very badly, actually. Yeah, okay, that didn't work. I messed it up. But that's really cool. I mean, that's fun. Some Someone could have a lot of fun with this, too, in terms of just, like, sort of pseudo random or or semi random image generation. I mean, this is it doesn't get any more direct than that. Well, that is very cool. So that's there you go. That's net pbm and I I have to say hipster has kind of sold me on this format. I see the I see value in this now. I didn't see it before because it didn't make any sense to me. Um the the, the file size and and uh, the apparent lack of actually doing what it said. Um it just didn't make any sense. But knowing about the dash plane option and understanding the advantages to having it be plain and you can edit it in an editor and you can, well, compress it as text uh, and uh, pipe it to something else. I mean, I I see the value there. I really do. So thank you, Hipster, for that email, for that feedback. That was really, really cool. And um, this is the, I think this is, this is one of those ways that this sort of whole experience really really works best is when someone who knows something more about a thing than me lets me know about it because then i get to learn but then i share it back with you and you get to learn about it too if you didn't know so and if you did know how come you didn't email me um so yeah, this is really cool. This is really neat. So thank you, hipster, for feedback, uh, for useful feedback. Um, yeah, it's really cool. I'm I'm impressed. I that was that was a really neat journey of discovery, and we took it together, dear listener. Let's take another journey over to the coffee station together, and we'll come back and well separately, uh, and then we'll come back together and talk about something completely different. <laughs> Recently I got a sort of a little gift card in 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 payment for services rendered and it was a gift card to a, a not very local food store like a grocery store and and the other day I happened to be out of town I happened to be near one of these grocery stores. And so I went in and I kind of just panicked. And I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to use $50. 50," It was a $50 gift card. I thought that that's so much money. How will I ever use it? I don't know what I was thinking, honestly. $50 in a grocery store does not go that far. But I roamed the the aisles of the food store. Convinced that I was never going to be able to get up to $50. But I didn't want to have the card around anymore. Long story short, so I bought a bunch of coffee like just a bunch of whole bean coffee bags from just 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 to just to use up the the card and uh overdid it used up the card and then some, but I have a lot of coffee now, so today I am, and it's just average, weird, plain old, you know, whatever coffee. Uh, so this is Robert Harris, and if you've been listening to this show for a very long time, you may remember Robert Robert Harris from Wellington. Uh, not the person, the brand, the coffee brand. I don't know who Robert Harris is. The back of the bag says that he was a f- person instrumental in founding the coffee scene in New Zealand. I don't know if that's true or, or what, but he. Anyway, he's got a coffee brand, and it's called Robert Harris. And it's not bad. That's what I'll say about that. It's it's not bad. Um, I mean, I've been kind of on a not bad coffee kick, I guess, um, for the past couple of episodes. It hasn't been incredible. Uh, and this this continues that trend. It is It is not great. It is not bad. It's just, it's coffee. You know, I mean, you you can find worse coffee hopefully your coffee is is amazing um, I'm hoping that you have like an incredible cup of coffee. I have an okay cup of coffee in the email hipster mentioned the unix philosophy and in a follow-up email that came up again it it's hard to ignore that the net PBM package that we just talked about it contains like a lot of binaries a lot of executable binaries it it ships with three hundred and forty-eight executable binaries. That's if you do a wc-l on user bin on on, uh, on, on the package uh, listing in, in var log packages for netpbm, you grep for user slash bin, pipe that to wc-l, you get 349 results, one of which is the directory itself, user bin. So 348 elf binaries ship with netpbm. And looking at what those are they are mostly well they're they're conversion applications from one specific format to another specific format so you have things like i mean it's really it's, there's just 349 of of them or 348 of them whatever i said um it is a lot so here's rast to pnm this rasterized image i guess to pnm raw to P G M, raw to PPM, R G B three to PPM, S V G to PAM, XPM to PPM, XVM I N I to P P M YUV split to PPM, and it just goes on and on, as you can imagine. I mean, it's just so many executables. Hipster notes in the email that this is kind of in line with the Unix philosophy, or this is one aspect of the Unix philosophy. The Unix philosophy in this context being a, a program should do one thing and do it well. That's an important sort of component to... I don't know to, to a philosophy right a mode of thought now the other segment here of of the unix philosophy that this is applicable to is the concept that everything should uh, be pipeable so i mean that's 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 one of the reasons you want things to do one thing and to do it well because that way you can string unique functions together well i should say commands together and and create something bigger than the sum of its parts more or less and and so this qualifies there as well net pbm or pnm whatever uh, does it sends its output to standard out you get you get the the results of that command in your terminal whether you whether it makes logical sense to you or not That's important because, I mean, uh, that means you can redirect it. You can pipe it. So those are two parts of the Unix philosophy that are represented here by NetPBM. But you still have to get back to the fact that NetPBM, the package, provides 348 commands. That is a lot of commands. And I think the argument against that kind of delivery is, well, it's, I guess it's I guess it's, I guess the, the big argument against that to the modern user is one of user experience. Because there's this, there, there's, a, there's a balance when you're making something for people, for humans. There's on, on one end of the, one, one, one pole is that you have, let's say, one door into your club one door is really easy for people to identify. That's that's the door into the clubhouse. There are problems with that, though, um... You, you could you could create bottlenecks because you have everyone coming in and out of that one door. You could have someone overlook that one door as well-signed and and as many flashing lights as you have. People could walk past it and not realize that was the door into the clubhouse and, and they're looking for another door. Well, there was only one door and they missed it so they don't get in. All kinds of problems with that, but, but lots of benefits as well. Again, there's one door. Find that door, you are in. On the other opposite end, on the other polar opposite into that is uh, having 348 doors the benefit is that you have 348 doors there's a door for everyone the disadvantage is that when someone's looking for the door they see 348 doors they have no idea which one to go in now you might tell them doesn't matter go into any door they all lead to the same place but do they really i mean they can't all be equidistant to the same place, can they? I mean, I guess they can, as long as you don't have... I guess, yeah, you in a, in a certain configuration, in a theoretical uh, configuration, you could have all of them being equidistant. Well, no, not from from one point, though. So, no, that's not actually possible. So, yeah, I mean, yes, choose any door, and yet which one to choose. It's, it's overload. Now, somewhere in the middle there is something like image magic to... to get out of the analogy mode here image magic is a program that does a lot of image conversion and it has maybe five commands it's confusing because it's called image magic and yet none of the commands are image or magic the commands are convert and mogrify and identify and all of these other single words that don't really have any association on their own with image magic they're they're just commands that that invoke image magic code to convert your images. They don't have 348 one applet one binary for every potential file format. It's, image magic can auto detect that sort of thing and it does. So you say convert foo.jpeg foo.webp and you've converted foo from a jpeg to a webp. You didn't have to you don't have to remember the command jpeg to webp you just remember convert and then you do the thing and however that gets sorted out on the back end it just happens within image magic i th- i think hipster said that there might be a uh, some updates to image magic eventually that 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 combine the commands into like one sort of single big command i think i think there was one called graphics magic for a while or maybe there you know there still is like an offshoot of image magic that did start with some m- magical term like i want to say it was gm and then space you know convert food dot jpeg food dot or something like that i could be m- m- misremembering but that's um that's kind of the concept of of acknowledging okay well let's give people that singular door as it were which is like the one command that they'll remember and then from that command they'll be able to branch out into the sub commands essentially um and it's a little bit of uh, it's it's akin to i guess signs uh, you know in a building or on a hiking trail you you send the person down the path and from there they get to choose which way they go based on on their own needs or, or requirements and that's another advantage to having that sort of that common common entryway i guess git is the the canonically uh big example of that i mean there are many others but git but uh, git does this um and and i feel like it kind of almost Maybe popularized that approach? Maybe maybe not. But for me, at least, I, I, I think I first mostly noticed it in Git, where you do Git, and then some, some action, some verb, some subcommand, Git add, Git commit git log git uh, push git pull git merge all the other things that you do and and if you go into you know if you do man git you get um the man page for git itself but if you do man git dash commit then you get a man page specifically for the git commit action so is git commit like its own thing or is it is it is it a git like is it git plus commit or is it git commit? Like how does that work? And I don't know. I didn't I haven't looked at the code. I've no idea how it's structured, but but to the user it's it's the word git and then Well, let's just do dash dash help. Ah, okay. Well, here's all the stuff that I need to know around Git. So there's this add, there's a move, a restore, and eventually you get down to commit and you realize that that's probably what you want. So then you get to do git commit dash dash help. There's the man page for git commit and so on. So th- that, that's an approach. And I think when we say whether, when, when we wonder whether something is following the Unix philosophy of doing one thing, it, it sometimes gets hard to, to distinguish exactly what we mean by one thing. Uh, The classic argument here is ls. You don't have to be a a Linux user for very long to know that the ls command does a lot. It doesn't just do the one thing. Uh, There are, I think, probably 26, at least 26 options to ls. One for every alphabetical letter, uh, every letter in the alphabet, and and then the the ones that would be missing uh, are made up for because there are some letters that get two, like dash A, dash capital A, dash A being dash dash all, dash capital A being dash dash almost dash all, which just doesn't show you the dot and the dot dot entries for the, you know, the, the current directory, the, the parent directory. So there's, there's a lot of options to ls. And so if, you're, if, if you introduce someone to Unix and tell them here, every command just does one thing. But it does it very, very well. They're going to find out pretty quickly that that's not true. That's just not correct. If, if they want a long list, they they have to do ls space dash l. Which I don't even think has a long option version, does it? I think it's just dash l. I, I don't even think they bothered giving that the extended. I don't even see it listed in the man page, to be honest. Where is dash l? should be after the h. Oh, there it is. No, that's not it. That's an I. Yeah, dash L. Use a long listing format. Okay, so that's funny. They don't even bother giving that the long. So anyway, I mean that's consist. That's a consistency problem with ls. But ls, I mean ls dash L, ls dash L H, ls dash A, ls dash. what is it capital F? I think for full for for the for the uh long or not the long but the characters format dash dash format no no dash capital f dash dash classify uh, append an indicator like an asterisk for binaries a slash for a directory and so on uh, to tell you what kind of file so there's there's a bunch of like little add-on features to ls that that strictly speaking under this classical argument which i'm not saying is valid i'm just saying we've all heard it we've probably all made it once or twice uh that LS itself does not just do the one thing. It does lots of different things. Well, you can't quite accuse NetPBM of that. Most of its commands just do the one thing. They convert to a, a from a very specific format to a very specific format and that's the purpose of that command that's the only reason it exists that is all that it does the question i guess is whether that's better like is it better to have the 348 binaries and and i think the 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 potential problem with that design choice is that you you do now have 348 commands that a user must discover and if you don't know that it exists or you don't know that you need it then it it can be rather difficult to discover then again as discovery opportunities go you have to admit that a lot of these the names of these commands uh, they're 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 pretty good for discovery. I mean, if you have a PNG and you want to convert it to something, you 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 very well might just start typing PNG and then hitting tab a lot, and and then you'll see all the all the commands that start with PNG, and there it is. There's PNG to PAM and PNG to PNM. Take your pick. You've just discovered a new two new commands that you can potentially use. Same goes for a JPEG. I imagine. Let's do JPEG or JPEG. No, JPEG with an E. JPEG to PNM. There it is. So... Yeah, it doesn't take you long to discover some of these as long as you kind of, as long as you're thinking in that in that way. Which, I mean, that's fair. I mean, the only way you're ever going to discover anything in a terminal is to think a certain way. Uh, I don't think it's fair to take in, you know, bring in the mythical user who's never seen a keyboard or a monitor before and introduce them to a terminal and expect them to to, to auto-discover everything. Like, that. that's an extreme case that I don't think is... is really all that worth considering uh, on a daily basis. So yes, 348 commands, but not bad. Not bad for discovery, maybe. Uh, Is it better than the word convert? Maybe, maybe not. It depends. Is it better than a keyword uh, like, you know, image magic or IM or or magic convert or whatever the, the, the keyword would be before your, your, your big grouping of, of commands. Uh, Again, maybe, I mean, if, if someone's heard of the application and, and understands that that's what they need, then they can kind of discover the functionality of that application. Are they going to find it on their own with some arbitrary, functionally a brand name? Probably not, though. I think those are, that's, arguably pretty difficult to to auto discover and, and you know the same argument could be made against um ffmpeg or sed or grep you know what i mean as as ubiquitous as sed and grep are or emacs and vim um and awk and all these very very classic commands i mean how, how are people ever going to know that they exist so there's one door into sed i guess and yet Everyone's going to miss it unless they unless they know that it's there. Would it be any better to have um, 348 said commands? Would that help? I don't know. What keyword would you use, and, and which function of said would you would you kind of concentrate on? So, all right, Unix philosophy: doing one thing. Does anyone actually do one thing? And I mean, yes, some some things exactly do one thing. Like the echo command comes to mind. Echo. Uh, It does have more options than I realized, I guess. And, And those options are one, two, three options. There's an option to not output the trailing new line. I don't think you could argue I I think you could argue that that is still doing one thing it's just how you do that one thing dash e to enable the interpretation of backslash escapes okay again I I think there's an argument that that's still one thing dash capital e disables interpretations of backslash so it's the opposite of dash e and it is the default so in a way it's not even really an option I mean it no option is the same as having a dash capital e and that's it though that's that's the extent of the echo command so that's that's pretty strictly that's a strict adherent to the unix philosophy of doing one thing it outputs everything to standard out so it qualifies there but i mean not everything that we want to do on a computer is as simple as echo and that's when we start to run into problems i think i think the the, the strict solution... Well, first of all, so the, the problem here, really, is that the Unix philosophy is a mode of thought. A philosophy is not a, a set of laws. It is not a religion. It doesn't impose or expect anything of you. It is, it is just a way to think of things. And so by saying that there is a Unix philosophy... All we are saying is that there's a way of thinking about system design, and here's one sort of, like, guiding principle. Obviously, we're humans, and we love to take guiding principles and and and, inter- and, and interpret them for our own lives and kind of give them, assign them importance. A guiding principle for one person is... A, an unquestioning allegiance to someone else. And that's fine. There's no sort of um, governing body here to make sure that we do or do not adhere to the Unix philosophy. We get to make our own choices, each and every one of us, especially within open source. But I, I think the of a philosophy, I mean really, again by design, is a little bit ill-defined. It's a little bit fuzzy. It, it's a philosophy. So it's not saying that, I mean, it's obviously not saying that literally everything that you write can only do one thing, because otherwise we wouldn't have commands again, like ls. So, I mean, that throws everything out of out of joint because well now, okay, so what we're saying is that everything must do one thing except those things that do not do only one thing. Okay, well our philosophy is just fallen apart, right? I mean, what what do we do now? Um, so I, I think I mean for it to be a sensible for it to be a requirement, we, we there would have to be a design document, a roadmap. We we would have to say, well here's how we here's how we construct our ideal hyperbolically correct to the Unix philosophy system and it would probably be a, a, a lot to take in because there'd be a lot of individual components doing very very minor tasks that i think could almost become crippling at some point i haven't stepped through the the thought exercise on that beyond beyond just thinking that that such a thought exercise exists because it it is, it's, it's ridiculously huge. And I think ultimately, like truly, like if you really think about the, the pragmatic implication of the Unix philosophy, I think that, that it's referring to code. And I, I don't think it, it literally is only referring to code, but I think, I think ultimately it makes the most sense, at least to me, when you think about it in terms of code. And here's what I mean. If you're writing an application, you're you're writing a command, you're, you're doing the code, and you've written a function to, I guess, list files. That's not a terribly difficult task, admittedly, but let's say that's the task you're, you're doing, just because that's the example we started with, more or less. Um, and then you, you realize, well, you know, some people are going to want this file listing at, w- with a lot more information and in list form. And for whatever reason, you think, well, that output... And I think this is a good argument. That that output would be very different than the pure output of just my normal ls function. And there's, I mean, that's an easy argument to make. Like, if you go to the ls command, go to a terminal, and just type in ls, then you get whatever... Actually, you know what? You'd, you'd have to type uh, backslash ls because because that escapes any kind of aliasing, which I, I have a bunch of aliasing on my default ls. So my default ls isn't the real ls. Backslash ls gives you the the pure form of ls as as written, and and that gives you the output of of the contents of your current directory in kind of um, a column view, and it's, perfectly nice and and that's great now you do backslash ls-m as in mike and you get the same listing but they're delimited by commas instead of uh, delivered as columns so you just get a uh, just on one line essentially i mean if you it might have to wrap in your terminal depending on the size of your of your screen Uh, of your terminal window and so on. But I mean, it is, there's no new, or there is like one, there's only one new line character at the very end of this list Uh, of, of all the contents of your directory delimited by a comma space. Okay. That's, that's, Still similar, different delimiter, but I think that you could argue, as with, like, the Echo new line character. I think you could argue that a different deliminator, different delimiter, yeah, different deliminator still qualifies as doing one thing. It's just, you've just, you've opted that instead of filling the gaps with white space, you, you, you eliminate gaps and and just delimit each item by a comma space. But then if you do the backslash, ls-l, I mean, I don't think there's any argument here that that's basically completely different output. Okay. Strictly speaking, you could then pipe this through awk and look at just a specific column within within this text, and then you have the same output. But I think it, it would be very difficult to argue that the standard output of ls-l is really in any way <laughs> the same as the standard output of ls or ls-m or even ls-1 there's just those are completely different outputs like you it would completely change the way that you know a a pipeline integrating ls would completely change the way that that it worked like at least with ls-m you'd probably get like at least one valid return for the first item in the list or ls-1, you'd get at least, you know, at least you'd catch, like, the first instance. But ls-l, you would just get drx, or uh, drwx, rwx, rws, r-x, plus, whatever. So I don't think that's the same, and I think you would have to argue that that's a different, that that should be a different command. And funny enough, on, on I think, Debian auto uh alias is this and on lots of systems people end up with this alias one way or another ll separate command except it's not it's an alias to ls dash l i actually have it aliased to ls uh, dash l dash uh, yeah lh because I, I whenever i do a list view i i usually want the human readable version not the the byte count version so i just do that but the point is that everyone, like m- lots of people have LL as a, a shortcut on their system, either because it, it's it's already in your bash RC or you've added it to your bash RC or bash aliases, wherever you keep your aliases. So I'm thinking, thinking about code. If you've written a function to list a directory and you're reusing that function for you know, several times over, then you are doing one thing. You can argue that you're doing one thing because you're invoking that one function. But if you start writing another function that might be called by, you know, under some other circumstance, well, now you've literally, you've you've literally got two... Well, you're going to have lots of functions, but so, yeah, you've got not literally you've got two main functions now in one binary executable and i'm imagining although I, I didn't look at the source code because i um i refused to do that much legwork for the uh, pnm format but um i'm imagining that the binary executables for you know png to pnm i'm imagining and i, I could be wrong but i'm imagining that they aren't reusing the same function over and over again because they are so specific so i think there's probably an argument for the the pbm pnm pam packages to or binaries to be separate binaries because i'm i'm betting that they actually do have to have distinct functions i could be wrong but that's what i'm betting could it have been written differently probably probably they could have the, the author probably could have written one function that called another function to auto detect formats the way image magic does for instance and 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 just delivered one or two or or five different front end conversions actually probably just one with auto detection and, and and provided options for the user to specify which specific thing they want to go to, like a PAM or a PNM or a PGM or a PPM and so on. So I think that the Unix philosophy doing one thing uh, um, rule or, or ideal really ought to be governed by the person doing the coding. And a lot of times I don't think that that's something that the coder can necessarily know up front. Maybe in an idealistic kind of programming world where you actually, like, just literally pre-plan everything and, you know, 90% of the production is pre-production. Um, maybe that could be a thing, but, I mean, I think in practice, in open source, I was going to say especially, but actually, knowing what I know, yeah, maybe not especially, but anyway, in in open source, uh, you, you have a lot of people kind of developing things you know sort of incrementally kind of like well i need i need a thing to do this oh you know what else it could do is this oh you know what else it could do is this if you're writing a bunch of functions into a command like you know theoretical main functions then yeah you probably have more than one command if you are writing one function that you call every time the the command is is invoked that's the function that happens there are some options that get that get caught but they're all going back to the same function ultimately then you probably don't have more than one command and I think that would be the guiding, the guiding principle. I mean, I think it would kind of sort of have to be because, I mean, the alternative is to say, well, I'm going to just reimplement this one function across a bunch of different commands. And now your code base gets a lot more complex with some clever uses of said. You could, you know, in theory, you could say, okay, well, this is the model. This is the, the I, I've gotten this one... I've gotten the bug ironed out of this one command. Now I will apply those changes to 347 other uh, source code files. That's not the best way to develop. So, like, like in a very, in a very real sense, like it just it doesn't make sense to adhere to a philosophy of doing one thing if doing one thing means copying and pasting the same function into lots of different source code files just so you can deliver 348 individual executables that don't ever encroach upon one another's uh, actions well it just doesn't make sense if now you have to bug fix 347 times or 348 times whatever that that that's a bad way of doing things and that 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 is definitely not the intent of the Unix philosophy. I, I know that. Now, the, to, to further complicate things, because this wasn't complicated enough yet at all, there's there's that pesky user experience thing. And and that isn't just a sort of like a new modern way of thinking about computing and boy, isn't it bothersome that everyone needs to be, everyone needs everything to be quote unquote user friendly now. That's, that's not what this is. I mean, I don't know that that, exists anyway but um that's not what this is this is like like sometimes there are little things that a program does that sort of out of context doesn't really make a whole lot of sense and you see this a lot in shell scripts because a shell script by design is is i mean it's it's taking a bunch of little commands and sticking them together so you do see this a lot in shell scripts and, and that's the function of a shell script. You're running a, a batch job of lots of things. So you'll find um, that that y- you'll have like little functions in a in a shell script that. You know, that does some kind of weird temporary conversion or uh, that just removes a bunch of, I don't know, vowels from a file name. What for? Well, don't worry about it. It, it just, we just needed to do that as an intermediary step to get to over t- to this next function. So, again, does that count as a one thing or is that n- not one thing? And I don't, I don't even talk about really the code aspect of that now. I'm just saying for a user, like at what point do you realize? that doing one thing with a command is just not enough. And and in some weird way you would you know you, you can deliver 348 components and then, then what do you do? You write a design doc a man page about how you how how you string these command these binaries together to make something that actually achieves the purpose that the the thing that you were trying to write can achieve. It would be, it would be like breaking, you know, the the PNM format, which was, I think it was the PNM one, right? I think, or maybe it was a different one. One of them was, was exclusively an intermediary format. And it, it would be like delivering that as a command that you always have to run in conjunction with the conversion binary you actually want to run. And that would just be counterproductive. And again not the intent of the Unix philosophy. In other words, there's a definite exemption to Unix philosophy doing one thing, uh, only one thing, when, you know, because there there are components of, of applications that are less than one. So do one thing and do it well. Well, what if you do less than one thing? Well, yeah, okay, well, you you get grandfathered, and you, you get to be combined with another, with with something else, because you're not the one thing yet. You're just... Half of a thing. So if you're half of a thing, you get you get to be rolled into a a larger command. But if you do start doing two or three things, then maybe let's talk about splitting it up. Unless those two or three things are also components of the one thing that you're trying to do. Obviously, that would start to encroach upon like graphical applications which are obviously exempt from the concept mostly of doing one thing not always i mean there are weird little graphical applications that do one thing like a a media conversion thing you know where it's just like look i want to i want my user to be able to convert from a dot mov to a web m but they they don't know how to do a terminal they don't have that that They don't feel comfortable with that. They, I, I don't feel like explaining to them how to find a file path and to point to it and how to do that. So I'm just going to make this really quick graphical application. They'll drag a file onto it. It will convert the file and save it in the same location. Done. So that that could happen. I mean, you can still argue, well, there's a lot of things actually happening there because the code... Is actually doing a lot of things. It's creating a window and then putting a widget in and then doing the thing. And it's got an exit function and a go function and a save function. So again, the GUI, there's one thing that you're trying to do with a GUI application or one set of things, a a suite of things that you want to do, a, a singular suite of things that you want to do with this GUI application. All right, so Unix philosophy, lots of exceptions to it, obviously. Definitely more of a guideline rather than a rule book. But how does it relate to all the newfangled sort of uh, structural changes that we've seen in specifically Linux recently, and by recently I mean over the past decade? Like... I mean, the easy example, always. System D, very contentious. People hate it, people love it, people don't care about it. It's, it's, it's always, it's a thing, right? You can't mention it without people feeling something, apparently. Uh, pulse Audio used to be quite contentious. Don't hear that much complaint about it now, but it used to be contentious. In M-C-L-I, IP, the IP command rather than ifconfig, and so on. All of these, there, there's, all, there's a bunch of new things where people just kind of like to sort of point at and and sort of leverage accusations of violating the Unix philosophy. Well, I mean, we've just kind of demonstrated that the Unix philosophy has a, more exceptions probably than not, but still, like it's a philosophy, it's a mode of thought. So the intent of the Unix philosophy, sort of the the, the feeling of it, the the way of thinking about system design according to this this philosophy, do some of these, um, these changes to Linux violate that, that spirit of system design? And I, unfortunately, I think, I think it depends on what you want out of those components. So system D let's, let's take that. Cause that's a, that's a really, that's the most contentious one. And it's an easy one to sort of ponder. Uh, I think pulse audio is a little bit more complex because, well, actually, and, and I hear a lot less, People. I don't really hear people talking so poorly about that anymore anyway um, so system D let's just cut to the chase system D I mean it's got it's famously got what is what's the big complaint or one of the many big complaints it's got a web server in systemd. why would you need a web server in your init process well it depends on what you want your init process to do Sh- what what should an init process do is like asking well what should the LS command do and as people have demonstrated system D is actually quite modular it's a lot of different applications or lots of different components to it and blah 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 and yet you know when you try to uninstall systemd for instance it uninstalls the linux kernel so what's all that about well first of all those are lots of different complaints i mean th- these are all complaints that get leveraged and then sort of the the end result is it just goes against the unix philosophy and it's like, well the way that an rpm or a deb package is linked to other deb or rpm packages is a completely n- not a system d argument that's a package management argument and as a slackware user i have lots of thoughts about that um But I mean, or, or said another way, I have no thoughts about that because I don't have to worry about it. But the, 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 the system D sort of thing, the, the, the design of system D, the, the concept that if we scale it all back and just say, well, an init, an init system should be simple. And all it should do is bring, is start services. That's it. That's all I want. Well, then system D does not qualify, obviously. Like, that's... Systemd does a lot more than that. Does that in itself violate the Unix philosophy? I don't believe so. I think that what's happening here is that the the concept of an init system is being redefined. Whether or not you agree with that new definition is up to you, and completely fair game like i i don't think that i don't think you need to invoke a philosophy to decide that you want an init system to just start services on your machine like that's a fair argument unix philosophy or no but it's also to be fair a fair argument with the unix philosophy intact i mean the opposite argument is you know if you want your init system to also monitor whether those services that it started are still running that's a fair that's fair play if you want it to have an embedded uh, web server so that it can, I forget what the web server actually does. I guess that was a bad, a bad example. Uh, I, 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 I knew once, but I've, I've completely forgotten now. But if you want it to be able to monitor the containers running on your, on your system, that's fair as well. There are lots of things that systemd does that exclusively for one machine doesn't make sense, but for a cluster of machines makes a lot of sense. And, all that says to me is that there's diversity within the user base of Unix and Unix-like systems, and I think that's a really, really good thing. And it, it fully sort of supports the concept that as many diverse users as there are of Unix, there ought to be as that many, well, not not literally that many, but there, there ought to be a proportionate amount of options for how they run Unix, which I think... I believe we do have, uh, especially if you're if you're looking at Unix and Unix-like systems between BSD and Linux. I think we're pretty pretty well covered. Uh, Illumos is still out there; it's doing cool things. But I don't know that it's I I don't know. If, if you could really say that you're going to, you know, really run a Lumos, but I mean, you can or open Indiana, but I mean, whatever. So, so we've got a lot of coverage or lots of Linux distributions, as I've said, good or bad before, uh, lots of BSD out there, lots of different interpretations of how Unix ought to run, but also on what functions various applications even should have within that larger system. And I guess, you know, I guess the, the ultimate bombshell here is that ultimately I think that the Unix philosophy is actually just a way for us, for us enthusiasts, to keep in mind the, to, to push back against developers gone wild. And by that I mean there, there is a tendency sometimes for a system to be overdeveloped people get really excited about some aspect of a thing and they sit down and they have a marathon they have a hackathon and they they code amazing stuff and they and and it works really well it's amazing it's cool it gets lots of good new features and it gets rolled into a system and nobody but that one person and i'm being hyperbolic here it could be 10 people, it could be 20 people, it could be a whole company. Nobody but that one person understands that code. It's open source. People could look at it and figure it out and, and extend it or break it back down or re-implement it or whatever, but if nobody does that, then it's functionally not open source. I mean, it is, but if you don't look at the code, if you don't understand it, it's Basically, not open to you, right? It's 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 nothing. It's it's a black box because you don't. It might be a shortcoming of, of you, you you personally for not understanding it, but still, to you in your life, that's not open source. I mean, strictly, it is open source. I'm just saying it's not open. It doesn't have the effect of of open source on you. So I think that the Unix philosophy is is a great way to push back against that, to basically say, look, I want a system that I have a fighting chance of understanding. I want components of my system that I can look at and hold within my sort of brain space and and that's however much brain space i want to allot to it because once again yeah you could probably sit down and study for 100 years and finally understand everything but assuming you're not willing to do that or capable of doing that due to real life things then 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 some people just want to make sure that their system is 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 graspable they don't want their system to be ineffable they want to be able to understand it I think that's the spirit of the Unix philosophy do one thing and do it well because that ensures that we each we all have building blocks we have the components that we need or or components useful components that we can string together to create a system that works the way that we want it to work and once you start Introducing really, really complex components that 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 appear too complex for us to comprehend, then that does become it becomes dis um i guess i want to say disenchanting but really it's almost disassociating like it it sort of it forces you out of the game because now you don 't understand that anymore. Python is kind of the canonical example for me of of that tendency, and i don 't know is there a is there a law like a Um, you know, how there's Murphy's Laws and Moore's Laws. And is there a law about that? How, How systems just become more, you know, sort of more complex and overdefined? Like Python... Started at least when I, when I started with you know in programming I, I learned Python and the 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 pitch for Python was hey you're a new programmer don't worry you're gonna understand Python like don't worry about it you're gonna get this and that was encouraging and it ended up being mostly true but as 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 Python sort of grew and and became more official and got lots of pips and got lots of components to it and people started really being strict about, hey, this is a programming language now. You have to, like, we can't can't do this stuff anymore. You can't use all of these different terminologies, although there's still a bunch of that in there. Um, But I just feel like it became very sort of became very structured which i mean for a programming language is admittedly important but the just the way people spoke about python seemed to change and and suddenly you know all of a sudden there were pythonic ways of doing things and when you did something that was not pythonic people would would point that out to you and there were all these like weird style guides at how you, you you can't line up your comments uh, like that you 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 don't put don't pad your comments with white space to make them look good uh you have to do it this way instead uh and and there were you know, oh, to a new programmer, you know, oh, you have to program everything as a module because that's the way that Python does things now. And you have to do everything in a virtual environment. All of the, all of this sort of infrastructure and, and scaffolding around something that originally was just like, hey, Python's really cool. You can do anything with it. Look, here, here we go. And I mean, part of that is, is necessary. I mean, it's realistic. Like it it's actually true. What was the original, you know, was early Python just lying to people? I mean... In a way, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, you can do anything you want. It's just a little scripting language. And it's like, it's not really. Like, if you want it to do the things that you want, you're going to have to learn it for real. Like, you have to learn the actual way of doing things. Like, you can't just script. You know, it's like that's not going to work. You have to put stuff in functions and then you have to put that stupid clause down at the bottom where if underscore underscore main underscore, no, underscore underscore name underscore underscore uh, equals underscore underscore main underscore underscore then do the function or whatever it is, which again, you know, for to a new programmer, none of that makes sense. And I feel like in an operating system, it's kind of the same way. Hey, Linux is really cool. It's got everything just does one thing and you can string anything together to make your own little programs oh well except this component here is this big big monolithic thing that you'll never understand and this over here uh, this depends on a database that you'll never be aware that it exists and sometimes it'll break but you can just don't worry you just refresh it uh it's not a problem And and this thing over here is is um you know and it just goes on and on the unix philosophy i believe is a pushback against that and i think it's a valuable one because ultimately, ultimately that is what we want. The problem is that sometimes that's not what we need. Sometimes we do need the, 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 the bigger picture. We, we need the ability to do it the other way. We, we have to have those, those guide rails and, and, and it has to be defined and it has to be structured and it, 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 the init system does have to monitor your containers and all of these other things. I don't think that this is a conflict. I think that this is a reflection of a diverse user base. And as I've said, I really, really think that's good. You're not going to look at Mac or Windows and and observe that everyone on those platforms has the exact same needs and only does e- in everything the same way. Because that's just not the case. There are lots of different users of other platforms, and they all do things in weird and wonderful ways, all designed for them by big corporations that, that have done market research and to figure out exactly what their highest-paying market bases require. Open source has not done that. It doesn't look at the highest-value market base. I mean, it does, but there's a bunch of other people looking at themselves and their friends and their communities. And so we get a lot of different choices within open source. I know that feels like it's just sort of my default answer to any time there's apparent like conflict or conflict of interest within within linux or linux versus bsd but in reality i think that's true i think that the the value of user choice is the key here if you want something that supports in spirit the unix philosophy because i don't think you can have something that supports the unix philosophy like to the letter as i've as i've explained but if you want something that supports it in spirit and and that spirit can be defined by you of course i mean like what what is de- what is supporting it in spirit what does that mean to you does it mean just not having system d or does it mean that you want separate binaries for your ls command whatever you want you can find or make that system for yourself and that's huge that's a big deal and for other people the unix philosophy might be a nice to have but not necessary and that's fine too i i i wouldn't i wouldn't be crippled by the unix philosophy i i, I do think that as a as a programmer, a hobbyist programmer, sometimes I get, I do get tripped up by it, you know, I've I got to do everything, just, it should only do one thing. It's like, well, nope, that's not true. There's that intermediary function in your program. You should not break that out. It doesn't make sense outside of this program. Just leave it in there, and it's fine. But at the same time, I'd also keep the Unix philosophy in mind. Because sometimes, especially around version, you know, 2.0 of your program, you realize, you know what? Actually, those two things are separate processes. Like, those are really, truly separate, and this could be useful outside of this program. Let me break that up, break that out, and make them two separate binaries, or something similar to that. I think that's everything I have to say about the Unix philosophy. It's a big, big topic, obviously, and, and I, I think, as with any philosophy, ultimately, it, it is designed for discussion. I do I would hate for there to ever be a time where we just sort of decided that, that there's no point of uh, point, there's no point in discussing the concepts of the UNIX philosophy because they're, they're such useful sort of design notes. and now it sounds like I'm trivializing it. Look, they're, tr- they're, they're important design notes and words to live by. Like, as I've said before, I think, Linux has literally changed my life, like it has changed open source and Linux and Emacs and Git. I mean, they've, they've changed my life. They, they changed the way that I look at processes and think through problems. So like, I don't take it lightly. I just, I just acknowledge that, you know, philosophy is a philosophy. It's, it's, importantly and significantly not a religion it is not a set of law it is a philosophy and that requires thought it requires a lot of thought and constant thought and and now you have something to think about until next week when we meet here for the n section of the slackware install dvd talk to you then Thanks for listening. My name's Clatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is Clatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not Clatu at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music...